Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside J.J. Cooper. The last couple months has been a lot of discussions about why baseball's not back, the state of the virus, uh, a lot of things that were obviously very, very concerning. The state of the coronavirus pandemic is still concerning for the country as a whole. From a baseball perspective, we did get some good news this past week. Major League Baseball is officially returning. It will be a 60-game season. Camps open July 1st at home ballparks or nearby sites. Regular season is set to get going July 23rd and 24th. There's a lot of rule changes that are going to be put in place for this truncated season. But JJ, before we dive into the rules, I want to just kind of break down with you. Now that we have the whole big picture assessment of everything it took to get to this point, just what are your thoughts on negotiations, how everything was handled, and ultimately just the process to get to this final conclusion of a 60-game season? I, I get it. I, I get it, fans. It's awful. I, I, I understand it. I understand that as a baseball fan, fandom is such, understandably, it's a passion. It's something we care about. And as such, when you see people arguing back and forth really about money, because that's what these negotiations, are, you know, at the end of the day, always end up revolving around. I absolutely understand how difficult that is to kind of have to live through the day-to-day negotiations back and forth and all that. That said, this is, you know, I, unfortunately, if you, if you hated the 2020 negotiations, just you wait till 2021 because this is how these things work. These are two sides. This is not two sides who work together hand in hand to resolve baseball's problems. That's not where anyone is right now. That's not where they're going to be anytime soon. And at the end of the day, as ugly as it was, this was not a breakdown in negotiations. This was not a a situation where the two sides could not get together. They got together. They got together in March. Then they spent the next April, May, and part of June arguing about what they agreed to in March. But at the end of the day, What they ended up doing was using the agreement they had in March. They just didn't modify it. They would tried, they had negotiated to add to that March agreement. And at the end of the day, neither side could get enough of what they wanted in that. The owners did not want to pay for full full freight for games more than about 60 games. The players didn't want to play for less than full freight. The players didn't want to give up their right to a grievance, which could be potentially financially lucrative for them without getting something else further in return. That's how we ended up where we are right now. But the process, as ugly as it was, the process in some ways did work. We're going to have a season. It just was a lot uglier getting here than we had, than, than, than fans would like when would prefer. I think one thing to keep in mind here, and maybe this is just because I come from a background with a lot of legal and financial professionals. So I've seen it and I know it negotiations are always ugly. I shouldn't say always. Negotiations are quite frequently very, very ugly, especially when there's enormous sums of money involved, whether you're talking about mergers and acquisitions, whether you're talking about labor negotiations in all businesses. Major League Baseball is just more public. It's more front-facing. So fans get an inner look at all the ugliness, whereas is this necessarily any uglier than a lot of other business negotiations between two sides? 
No, not necessarily. Unfortunately, this is kind of par for the course. It just plays out in public when it's Major League Baseball. That all being said, I think the thing that I come away from all this, just kind of shaking my head the most is once players and owners got to that point of players proposing 70 games at full prorated salary, the league at 60 games, full prorated salary. For $8.3 million per team and player salaries, MLB could have gotten expanded playoffs, advertisements on uniforms, and the threat of a grievance dropped. That's a very small sum for all the benefits they would have gotten. And we're not talking about short-term versus long-term here. These are short-term benefits insulating themselves from potentially a grievance that some have put at a billion dollars or more. The expanded playoffs happened this year. The ads on uniforms happened this year. This was money that was going to come into their coffers this season. The fact they didn't take that kind of shocked me. I also feel like we talk about the acrimony and whether or not fans, how turned off they were or were not by this, especially now that baseball is coming back and it's going to be an exciting season. A lot of people have talked about long-term fans come back whenever there's labor strife. However, there's normally still a dip in the first year or two after that, and it takes four or five years for them to come back. Again, there's going to be a lot of factors here. You have, depending on whether or not antivirals or a vaccine is found for the coronavirus, depending on the financial state of the country with 40 million unemployed, there's probably going to be a fan dip regardless, but additional fans who would stay away because they were so turned off by negotiations. That's something they could have avoided altogether if they had just taken care of this a little bit earlier. And then for me, the biggest thing, too, that hurts them long term, but again, it wasn't like they got benefits for the short term out of this either. If they had come to an agreement earlier, the chance to have engaged new fans throughout June and July, I think, is the biggest missed opportunity here for Major League Baseball. If they had gotten into camp on June 10th, they would have had three weeks of spring training coverage all to themselves. Start date around July 1, you'd have a full month of regular season games before the NBA and NHL playoffs really get going. And what really hit at home for me was this, just a personal story. My youngest brother is an investment banker. He is a huge sports fan. He's played sports his whole life. Basketball is his main sport, football as well. He's not a big baseball fan, but he's a young professional who loves sports, is going to have disposable income, lives in a major city where there's multiple teams. This is the type of person Major League Baseball wants to bring in for the long-term health of the game. Young, disposable income, all the things that you want from a potential season ticket holder, partial season ticket holder, someone who can buy the premium seats. I remember sitting with him watching a Korean baseball game. He had come home to write out the virus a little bit. And he said, you know, I'm so desperate for sports right now, I would watch baseball, which is something he has not said to me in many, many years. And that's what really hit home to me. Major League Baseball had a chance to get so many young fans involved. And maybe they watch June or July, the NBA playoffs start up and they forget all about it. But maybe they watch Ronald Acuna Jr. Maybe they watch Mike Trout. Maybe they watch Fernando Tatis. They see all the talent in the league right now and they get hooked and say, this is great. I want to invest in this. I want to buy tickets. I want to go and spend money on concessions. I want to buy jerseys. I want to buy hats. They had an opportunity to bring in extra fans for the long term and they just missed it. And so for me, that's where the league really hurt itself here. Short term, they missed out on, again, expanded playoffs, ads on uniforms, dropping the threat of a grievance, and they hurt themselves in the long term fan-wise. To me, this was just a case of ego getting in the way of sound business decisions, which is not unique to baseball. That happens all the time, but the owners decided they wanted 60 games. They interpreted that meeting to mean we agreed on 60 games. We're not moving off that. When in reality, moving to 70 games was the smarter business decision. 
and taking care of all this earlier rather than stalling so that they couldn't really play more than 60 games is also something that was not a but, smart decision short-term or long-term. That's at least what it appears from the outside. We have to see but, how things play out if there's an arbitration hearing over a grievance. But I just see this as a missed opportunity for Major League Baseball. I'm thrilled Major League Baseball is back, but they could have done this without hurting themselves as much as they did. I'll push back that I think there's a little bit Pollyannish because your thing is that they could have started the start of July. Well, the owners, that's not 70 games. That's 90 games. That's 85 games. And the owners were clear. Like, this wasn't something where they were slightly apart. The real problem comes back to is that, and again, at the end of the day, what we saw, and it's very cynical, and it very well could result in the, you know, we'll see what happens with the grievance, but the negotiations had to go on as long as they did for MLB to get to the point. Because again, in the March agreement, in the March agreement, it spelled out, it said the commissioner has to make best efforts to play as many games as possible. Any, any point, any stretch where they agree in early June to play means without and the, the the players were adamant and again they had a march agreement everyone even mlb officials agreed that mlb players had no responsibility no requirement to negotiate reductions in salaries they had agreed to a prorate per game they didn't have to do anything further there was nothing in that march agreement that said if there are no fans, you must. They said, we'll talk about it. And the players did talk about it. And the players answer on the talking about it was, no, we're not going to do it. But so what I'm saying is, is a July 1st start was going to involve the owners doing something that they were unwilling to do or the players doing something that they were unwilling to do. If the two sides, when we talk about 60 versus 65, which was the realistic, you know, like part they probably should have gotten to, because we had the owner saying 60 and we had the players saying 70, but 65, that's at that point. Okay. So then you're moving July 26th, 27th is moving to July 20th, but I don't think there really was a scenario. The two sides would not agree on a scenario that said July one. And here's where they could have made adjustments to that. Potentially you add another week on to spring training to get players a little more built up spring training 2.0, I should say. You can also finish the season a little bit earlier than September 27th. There's a lot of concerns about second waves of coronavirus in the fall, especially just given the history of pandemics. Again, never a guarantee that it's going to happen, but you look at the history, there's reason for concern. So that's where, for me, you can start earlier, get 70 games in, finish a little earlier, maybe get the postseason going and try to get it wrapped up. Or on the front end, you can add another week of spring training to it as well to get the starting pitchers a little bit more built up. I think there were ways around it. To me, I think a July 1st start date would have been really a critical benefit to them, even if that meant playing only 70 games instead of 80 by, again, tacking on a week at the front, cutting things off a week early at the back. I think the timing of it would have been critically important to the league. But now that we are here, though, because thankfully we are to an agreement, what... <laughs> What are you, I mean, you know, well, first off, I, I mean, I think we both acknowledge there are significant hurdles here still that, that are outside of the control of either side to fully work through. You know, the, the thing about coronavirus is, is that coronavirus, 
wherever you are now does not mean that's where you're going to be three or four weeks in now. And we are talking to start a season. We are talking three or four weeks from now. And, and that leads to very difficult questions. And right now we don't know. I mean, just to take an example, the Blue Jays feel like they're kind of a, uh, we don't know where the Blue Jays are going to play right now. There's no question. This is something Look, this is a novel virus. No one knows how this thing is going to go. A lot of predictions that were made by non-scientists in the spring have not come true in the summer while the scientists responsibly have hedged and said, here's what we think will happen, but you don't really know. And you're right. I, I think there's absolutely concern about, okay, how is this season going to play out? Um, obviously the health and safety protocols, major league baseball and the players association have put together are extremely detailed and extremely lengthy and I, I hope they're able to get the full 60-game season and plus the playoffs. I personally am optimistic they will. A lot of that is going to be on how strictly players follow the health and safety protocols, how stringent they are about it. But I am optimistic because I'm naturally kind of an optimistic person. I think they'll find a way to get a season in. At the same time, though, there are very real concerns. Um, we've seen not just the number of positive tests going up in states across the country, but the positivity rates, the percentage of positive tests. And, and that's the most concerning thing, whether or not those trends hold, whether they change, because again, this thing is constantly evolving. It is going to be a huge determining factor on whether a season can be played. And, you know, as much as we all love baseball, I don't think any one of us wants people risking their lives for, you know, the entertainment of the masses. But again, assuming there's a full 60 game season, some of these rule changes put in place. I want to get your take on them. The, the first is the universal DH, or I should say the DH going into the National League. What are your overall thoughts on that? Um, I understand that there are fans who think that that is absolutely a bridge too far. Um, you know, I, I do enjoy when Bartolo Colon hits a home run, but at the same time, I also have long felt, I, I don't want to make this sound like that basically that turns – you know, American League games are, are checkers and a National League game is chess. There's not a whole lot of, of really in, – in a, in, a, in a world of, uh, of 12, 13-man pitching staff, there's not a whole lot of really tough decisions where, you know, double switching and all. It, it's not like that there's this massive layer of strategy that gets eliminated with that these days. It's not like it used to be. And pitchers generally can't hit. So – I'm okay with it, you know, I, I, of all these changes. And I do think, by the way, I think that's one that we're pretty much – it's only for 2020 right now. Without there being an agreement, it's not for 2021. But I would also be shocked, <laughs> shocked if, if, if we don't have a DH in 2021 as well, just because I don't think I, – I, I think that pretty much almost – it's been viewed as a uh, concession to the players, but I don't think that the owners necessarily are uh, – all that, uh, you know, excited about having pitchers hit either. For the record, pitchers hit 128 with a 160 on base percentage and a 162 slugging percentage last year. And this might surprise some of our listeners who know, even though I'm in the younger end of the age bracket, I'm more of a baseball traditionalist, kind of a purist. I love the game. I love the strategy. The first nine years of my life I spent growing up in an American League city. So I was going to a ton of baseball games that were American League games. The second half of my childhood, I grew up in a National League city, San Diego, for those of you who, uh, who know me and know how much I rep San Diego is the place I grew up. And so I got to really watch the National League game up close, going to tons of games at Qualcomm Stadium and Petco Park. And for me, to be 100% honest, 
I always found the American League game more exciting and just a higher entertainment quality just because you're getting another impact hitter in the lineup and you're not having to do so many double switches that if, God forbid, the game gets to extra innings, you're in the 10th, you don't have any good hitters left. There's something entertaining about seeing pitchers being sent up to pinch hit. I remember watching the Padres do that with Woody Williams and Jake Peavy, and, and there's been so many other guys that have done that over the years. But I'd rather have guys who can actually mash in the lineup. I'd rather have a more entertaining product. I'd rather have a game where there's not an automatic out every time through the lineup. So for me, I actually am in favor of this. And I do think it's something that will benefit the game in addition to getting some players jobs, you know, guys who can really, really hit still, but their liabilities in the field and they look around, there's only 15 teams they can go to. And if their D8 spots are filled, they're out of a job. So um, I, I think this is going to be good for the game as much as I like the strategy components of it. I'm a big fan of better players on the field make for a better product. And to me, this puts better players in the lineup. Yeah, the other thing I'll say with that is, is that uh, I, I do look at the Diamondbacks now and say, you know what, that, that Seth Beer trade makes a little bit more sense now because uh, to me, he's going to have to beat Kevin Crone out. That'll be a fun. I was say they, they've got a couple. They've got a couple of guys who are very interesting for it. But but to me, that is something that absolutely stands out. You know, from the perspective of the you know the the fact that. Uh, that you, you look at him and you say, okay, you know, where is he going to play? Well, just hit, just hit now. You know, that's a, uh, that, that is useful. Uh, obviously very useful for him, you know, for, and them that way. But, but obviously that's kind of, I would say the, that's the, like the, the, the they slightly are tweaking the rules compared that's the to easier one for me. <laughs> that's, yeah. That, that's the one that's like, okay, well, you know, we've had, Oh, I don't know, 40 years, you know, almost, you know, know, more than 40 years, 45 years or so to get adjusted to the DH. Um, Okay, so we're now going to do the minor league speed up or the international, well, the minor leagues, the international puts them on first and second, I think, sometimes, but the the minor league speed up rules in extra innings. I think that one's going to be a a much uh, heavier lift for uh, for a whole lot of baseball fans. What, What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, so this is one that we at Baseball America have become eminently familiar with, just going to minor league games over the last few years. I do not like it in the major leagues. I was against it in the minor leagues to start, and I'm still a little bit torn as a fan who believes in, you know, the purity of the game. I think you should play the game till someone wins. But as a writer who has deadlines to meet, I'm not going to lie, I have enjoyed the rule change where there's runners on second and it kind of speeds everything up. I think back a little bit too. I've been okay with it in minor league games. I didn't like it in the World Baseball Classic as much because there's a higher level. There was more at stake. And I don't love it for Major League Baseball, especially with the fact that rosters are going to be expanded, at least to start uh, to 30 and then eventually 28. So you can get that swingman. You can get that extra long reliever in there. And then with the rosters expanding to 26 already this year, that's what it's going to revert back to after four weeks. You have another arm, potentially a, a long man type. For me, I think that you have the pitchers to play a 13, 14, 15 inning game. I also understand, though, that with guys not getting built up, it becomes more of an injury risk. I can deal with it this year. If they try and implement it moving forward, I will fight it. I think it will be an abomination. I think given the health concerns and that pitchers will not be built up and you're going to have to use more bullpen arms, particularly in the first month of the season to get through a nine inning game, I can live with it. So I would say I tolerate it. How about you? Uh, a couple things. One, I, I think it's perfectly fine in the World Baseball Classic because, I mean, the reality is is the World Baseball Classic 
is an event that teams are are already reluctant to 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 basically to give out their pitchers and let their pitchers participate in it and anything that that ensures that no one gets overworked is i think kind of vital in in the wbc so it it serves its purpose great the wbc i don't understand it I, i just don't for this season in the major leagues because every reason that you have to do this, or at least there's the need to do this, there's felt to be a need to do this in the minor leagues does not exist at the major league side. In the minor leagues, you're, you're focused on player development at the lower levels. And with that, you do not want to have a position player pitching or a guy who's supposed to go two innings, go six because you're in the 18th. That's something you want to avoid. Okay. So that makes sense there at AAA. You, you don't want to overtax your bullpens because most everyone in that bullpen is a, is a phone call away from coming up to the majors and an 18-inning game there or a 20-inning game or a 15-inning game means you, you have relievers who aren't ready. It, it really affects the team for multiple days because these teams just don't, you know, you're by rule in a lot of cases, well, at least rule by the club, by the organization, you're not going to see multiple 40-man roster relievers pitch on the same day. It, it really can blow up a, a bullpen for, for quite a while. None of those things are true in the major leagues where we're not just going to have expanded rosters for the first part of, the, of a shortened season. But on top of that, we have 60-man. We have all these, these massive taxi squads. Everyone's going to have plenty of arms if they ended up having one of those very rare 15-inning games. Yes, you may have to make moves, but I just don't see that you – I don't see that our four of players playing a game is going to massively up their exposure for coronavirus compared to our three from the health and safety perspective. And, again, I do think, like, there's a lot of misnomers out there. There's a lot of misnomers about, oh, the game doesn't really shorten the game. No, it absolutely does. Look at the data. It, it, it absolutely eliminates – if you look at the minor leagues, it eliminates the the 16 plus inning game. It just doesn't exist anymore. The 15 inning games are like, I mean, they're like snow. You know, they're 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 ultimately rare with this kind of rule. You basically 93 percent of games in full season baseball with this extra inning rule are resolved in the 10th or 11th if they go to extra innings. So it does a massively do what it does. The one thing I will say, as much as I may dislike it. It's going to be fascinating to me. And again, I can try to find the good in anything. It's going to be fascinating to watch the strategy. I ended up, Matt and I, Matt Eddie, you know, from our staff and I ended up having a, a 30 minute discussion of the strategy of this because at the start I was like, well, does this mean, you know, what we ended up coming to, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. I think this is probably more interesting than the, you know, how much we, you know, most, a lot of people hate this, but I, from a strategy perspective, I kind of think that you really you're going to want to carry a third catcher for one because if you get if a catcher ends up being the guy who's standing on second base to start the 10th inning you want to pinch run for that guy and if you have two catchers and you've made a substitution already you're not going to be able to do that you want to pinch run for that guy the second part of this is is I do think that this may then also the argument could be made that this adds to the case for carrying a third catcher who is a 40 defensively, but can hit. Williams Astadio, Yerman Mercedes, these kind of guys who... Austin Allen with the A's. Austin Allen, absolutely. These guys who you're saying, you know what? Again, 
it's a 60 game season. If you win an extra, extra inning game or two, that could be massive in this season. Well, so if I have a catcher who's standing out there in second base to start the 10th, I, I want to replace him because I need somebody standing on second base. I don't necessarily need a Terrence Gore or a Billy Hamilton who can steal third because any single should score most of these guys. And, and it could be sack, fly, sack, fly. I mean, you could hit a deep fly ball and a second deep fly ball. Even a, a, a 55 runner can do this. But I want someone who can absolutely score from second on a single you know, on a single to the, I should say, on a single to the outfield, you know, a single that's not hit directly at an outfielder. Okay, so I want that. But the second part is, I absolutely want a guy at the plate. More than anything, I want a guy at the plate who's not going to strike out. I, I don't want to do, again, at the bottom of the 10th, then you want a bunter maybe because you are playing an ultimate one-run strategy. But if it's the top of the 10th or the team that in the top of the 10th scored one run, I want a guy, the first guy who bats in that inning, ideally needs to be someone who's going to put the ball in play. You don't have to worry about the double play. Guy's on second. He's not on first. And literally, a single may score him, but at the minimum, if I'm putting the ball in play, I'm probably getting that guy to third, as long as I'm not pulling it right to the third baseman. I'm getting that guy to third base, especially if he can run a little bit, with one out. And if I have that guy standing at third base with one out, I, the strategies with this actually, as much as I may not like the idea of the, the, the idea of the rule, I think they could be fascinating. What do you think, Kyle? Well, absolutely. You know, watching this take place again, the little baseball classic, all the minor league games, you're right. One of the things that's the biggest, biggest difference is that first batter. If that guy strikes out or does not advance the runner in any way, that really, really, really takes down the possibility of that guy coming around to score. Obviously, there's all sorts of statistical matrices that can show that, but just watching it happen in real time, you see how much of a difference that makes. So I completely agree. And I will be very, very fascinated to see, especially as rosters are expanded to 30 players for these first two weeks, what type of personnel teams keep. You're right. There's going to be a third catcher. There's going to be another short relief arm in there. There's probably going to be potentially a long man. And that fourth guy, again, whether it's that speedster, if you don't have one on your roster already, whether it's that supreme contact hitter for those types of situations when, hey, whether he's a really good bunter, whether just the back control, and you know he's going to at least put the ball in play, even if it's a ground ball to the right side, if he's a right-handed hitter, because there's value in that in these situations. I would say those would be the four types of players I would probably add to my roster, given how the makeup of the season is aligned right now to start. And that is going to be fun seeing what kind of players uh, teams keep on their roster to begin. And with that, the taxi squads, you reported last week that teams have, were instructed to find sites within 100 miles of their major league stadium. We've had a couple teams announcers already. The Tigers are going to be in Toledo. The Reds are going to be in Mason, Ohio at a campus about 20, 25 minutes away. A lot of other teams are going to start announcing their sites here in the next couple of days. That to me kind of drives home the point too, though, where you mentioned that you don't really need to do this in the major leagues because you have the arms. You also aren't going to have any situations where, oh, the Nationals, your AAA arms are in Fresno. You've got to fly them across the country. This year, if you need to make swaps, if you need to bring new fresh pitchers in, it's a phone call. They're there in two hours, in some cases less. It's In some cases, it's 30 minutes. So I think that's another reason to not like this. You can pull those roster machinations off a lot easier than in a normal season. Um, but again, it is what it is. And I get it from a health perspective. You mentioned the coronavirus for me, it's more about pitchers arms not being built up. We're going to have a lot of relievers pitching early. Anyway, I'll be surprised if we see too many starters going beyond 
four or five innings. We saw that uh, to some degree early in the 1995 season when the same thing happened. Three additional roster spots were allowed for the first few weeks of the season uh, because camp got started late, at least major leaguers got into camp later than usual. So again, we'll see how it all shakes out. I do want to talk a little about the taxi squad strategy. I should say we should differentiate here. There's been word that a quote-unquote three-man taxi squad of inactive players will be with the team at the Major League Ballpark in the event of a positive test and someone's unable to... One of whom's a catcher, right? One, right, one of whom is a catcher. In the event you know someone has to you know sit out or be isolated, you have someone there ready to go to take his spot. But you're going to have essentially a reserve group of players, depending on the size of the roster at the time, 25, 30, 35 players at these sites 100 miles away, or within 100 miles, I should say. It's going to be a mix of guys who would normally be on the AAA to the major shuttle. It's going to be lower-level prospects who teams just want to keep fresh, give them some instruction, help them develop a little bit. When you look at this structure, JJ, what kind of players, if you were essentially, let's play some, let's have some fun. If you were running a team, who would you want on this uh, 30-man reserve squad within 100 miles, if you will? So the uh, 30 to, I, I guess at the end of the day, it's going to be like 34. Yeah, because, you know. it's a 26-man roster. So it would start at about, uh, again, depending on that taxi squad that's at the major league facility, if they're part of that 60-man roster, it can be anywhere from 27 to 34, which seem to be the range. So, I mean, that, that's a large number to me. You know, obviously, everyone who's on your 40-man, I assume, is part of this. I, I would see with very few exceptions. But, but that just strikes me as a really significant, really large number. And I say that because in a 60-game season, even with, a, you know, like a, a, a little bit of an abbreviated workup and, and all that, I, I – I, I, it, when it was good, it, it does seem to me like that's a lot of it. It's kind of creating a lot of room for, for, uh, for prospects because I don't think anyone barring a, you know, a, a pandemic, you know, breakout in, you know, uh, which could lead to much bigger problems, but I don't think that anyone's going to use 60 players this year. Um, maybe I'm wrong. You know, we'll, we'll see, but I don't see anyone using 60 and and with that being the case, I think that we're going to see more younger prospects. It's going to lead to, I'll say this, it's going to lead to a lot of very difficult conversations because it, much like the Rule 5 and the 40-man roster, it's one of those kind of those points where teams really have to in some way kind of tell you what they think about you. Um, if I'm a high A shortstop or second baseman, and they take my double play partner who's not on the 40 man and they don't take me. And I've always thought of myself as basically the same level prospect as he is. Well, I'm, or, you know, or I'm a center fielder and I'm in high a, and they took the low a center fielder and put him on that roster. Okay. So what they're telling me is, Oh, Oh, they, they, they think more highly of him than they do of me. I, I, I think there's only a certain limit of, I think you're only going to have like between starting pitchers and relievers 15, you know, like 15 extra. That's, that's a lot. And, and I do think, I mean, I'll be fascinated to see with this because 40 man roster rules still do apply, but like a team like the Braves who have a lot of close to the majors pitching prospects who have big league time, who are on the 40 man, 
I do see them getting shuttled back and forth. I mean, I think it's something where they can absolutely throw a wave of arms at this. And uh, I guess the I'm trying to think of other teams who would be like that. The Padres are a little closer to that, but a lot of those Padres guys aren't on the 40-man roster uh, yet, correct? There's a good mix of them that have been put on over the last year. But yes, some of the guys like Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino are not on the 40-man yet. You mentioned how many, te- how many players teams are going to use. The Mariners set a major league record last year for most players used in a season. That was 67. So 67 players is the record for a 162-game season. Again, barring an outbreak of the coronavirus. And again, I feel like if there was an outbreak that large, maybe some things would be shut down. I think it's very unlikely we see teams using 60 different players this season in the major leagues. I think realistically, again, it's tough because of all the health factors, um, again, both from a coronavirus standpoint and just arm health standpoint, and really even other players too. There's always soft tissue pulls. And I think we're probably looking at maybe 45 to 50 total, which would leave 10 to 15 spots devoted really to those. Okay, here's our top 10 to 15 prospects that are not on the 40 man or aren't guys that we think will help us in the major leagues this season. You know, talk about the guys in rookie ball or A ball. Um, I, I will be fascinated to see if teams take some of their first round picks this year. The Mariners uh, already announced they would take, likely take Emerson Hancock. Again, advanced college arm, you could see maybe helping in the majors as a reliever if needed. I get that. Same with Max Meyer with the Marlins. Same with Asa Lacey and the Royals. But the teams that took a high school first rounder, say the Rockies with Zach Dean, the Padres with Robert Hassel. I'm going to be fascinated to see if they put those guys on this taxi squad, if you will, just because there's no chance these guys are going to help in the majors this year. But you get them into a controlled environment. They're and, playing with older players. There is benefit to it. And and have we heard yet what the what the pay is going to be for this? Because that's going to be an interesting component as well. I have not. So a lot of teams have committed to paying their minor leaguers four hundred dollars through the end of the season. Stummer still more in June. A couple of teams have shifted. Uh, the Cardinals recently right, extended but, it through the end of the season. So if there's additional pay on top of that for these, I mean, would, guys, I, I would. I was going to say I, if I'm a <laughs> I will tell you right now, if I'm a, a minor league vet who is on a, uh, an 8000 or a 10000 a month salary, I, you know, 400 a week would seem to be very odd for me to be playing on a taxi squad um, that where I'm basically a phone call away from the majors, much like I would have been AAA. <laughs> That's, you know, I know this is not AAA baseball, but at the same time, it it's it's a very different uh it's a very different situation than you're sitting at home getting that four hundred dollars yeah there's no question and i think i'll be very curious to see once everything's officially announced because again a lot of this has been reported it's considered a given major league baseball has not officially announced a lot of this the only things they officially announced were the length of the season the fact that games will be played regionally camp opening date and season start date being out of July 23rd or 24th. Those are the only things they've officially hundred percent announced yet. So I will be curious to see the mechanics of all that. JJ, when you look at the season as a whole, I do think this is going to be really, really exciting. We talk so much about baseball being a grind. The spring component of this is kind of fun where every single game is going to matter. I put up a post yesterday. You can check it out on baseballamerica.com detailing which teams would have made the playoffs after 60 games every year since 2012. And there's a lot of similarity, but one of the things that came up while I was researching this 
the difference between the team that went 31 and 29 and the team that went 32 and 28 through those first 60 games was the difference between being in the playoffs or not. And a lot of times there were three teams bunched at that 31 and 29 mark and one team in that 32 and 28 mark. I do think that aspect of this is going to make things really, really exciting this year. Every game really, really, really counts. I will make a prediction. I expect, I know it's not in there right now. I expect we will have expanded playoffs in 2020. And the reason I say that is, is that both sides have a reason. This is something they'll actually probably come to an agreement on because both sides have a reason to. As it currently stands, players are playing the playoffs potentially for free. Players' playoff checks all come from postseason gates of the first, essentially the games in whatever series. If the best of five, they get gates for three. If it's a best of seven, they get the gates from the first four. The whole idea being you don't want players going back to the Black Sox scandal and all. You don't want players to have a financial incentive. No, no, no. We may be up 3-0, but we get a bigger check if we win it in six, not three, you know, not four, you know, so that, but so they get a, they get from the gate. If there is no gate, now there was a provision, there's a provision in the CBA that basically set a minimum for how much this is arcane, I know, but I love arcania. There was a provision that says, like, if you're the World Series champ, I think now it's like somewhat, something north of $4 million. You know, it, it, it's the minimum. In the March agreement, that was waived. The understanding being there may not be fans at the playoffs. If there's not, we're not going to say that you get a minimum distribution. So if you're, the, if, you're the, if you're the owners, you want expanded playoffs because expanded playoffs means more postseason money. You know, hey, I've got this, these extra games – and teams, you know, leagues, sorry, the leagues go to the uh, broadcasters and they're like, okay, we'll pay you X extra. If you're the players, your incentive to do this is instead of getting a share of socially distanced, reduced fan base, you know, fans at games or no fans at games, depending on what's going on, you have a reason here to be able to negotiate uh, significant playoff money potentially. So that being the case, we may see six, we could see 16 of the 30 teams making the playoffs. And that is something that I will be very, very curious to see just because that was the player's biggest bargaining chip in all this. It will raise my eyebrows if they agree to that without having gotten what they wanted in terms of more games, more pay. That is something that we will definitely see. Before we wrap up, we do need to touch on the minor leagues. It is already June 25th. Minor league seasons typically end the first week of September. No official announcement has been made. It is fair to say the expectation around the game is there will not be a minor league season as we traditionally know there to be one this year. What are you hearing on all this? Where do things stand? And what are the potential alternatives for players who aren't brought on to this, you know, 60-man taxi squad, if you will? Well, the first thing we reported today in a story up at BaseballAmerica.com is Although we have expected the demise of the 2020 minor league season for, for quite a while, you know, for one, there, no decision has yet been made. We do expect one in the next seven to 10 days, you know, roughly. Um, so I would expect some pretty soon. But I did find out in just doing reporting recently that, that there are still, uh, there's still been efforts, especially at the AAA level, to, to have minor league baseball of some sort even as recently as, as like, you know, the last couple of weeks, like there was a, they were working on proposals, like if MLB is coming back, 
we can play triple a baseball in august and september and you know maybe it's 25 dates per team maybe it's 30 they were looking at it basically as hey you know we where states are opening up, we can play at half capacity in a lot of these parks. So they were looking at that. I don't think that's going to happen. I, you know, I, I think it's extremely unlikely to happen. And the taxi squads, which have already now been announced, pretty much I would say put a kind of final uh, topper on that not happening because what we just talked about, what are these players? Well, the players that we're talking about here are the players in many cases who would be going to AAA. And they're trying to keep them close. They don't like what you exactly what you said. They don't want their taxi squad to be in Fresno and having to fly cross country. They want them being on a hop in the car. I'll be there in an hour, you know, an hour and a half if traffic is bad kind of scenario. So with that being the case, I don't think it's going to happen, but, but we aren't to that point yet. And it is interesting, but basically the other thing that's interesting with it is, is even though we don't have an announcement, Many minor league operators will have a story up about this, uh, I think today, hopefully, uh, you know, Thursday while we're doing, we're recording this. Uh, a lot of minor league operators, because they need to find revenue, they need to do whatever they can, they're not waiting for an official announcement. You see summer college leagues, you see high school showcases, and they're playing, they're scheduled in many cases through the end of July, and they're scheduled right across the dates that would be their dates if they had games which again, everyone knows like the chances of there being like, no one's making plans right now for, you know, to have a hundred and some minor leaguers come to camps. There are no camps. There's no spring training facilities being open for this right now. The spring training facilities are closed, but teams are, are not waiting for official word. I think all those have clauses in it that if somehow the season returned, they have precedence scheduling precedence over these summer college leagues or high school leagues or whatever. But Minor league teams absolutely need dates. They need revenue any way they can, any way they can safely can, as best they can safely can. And so they're not waiting. The biggest question now, you know, there's been a lot of talk of an expanded Arizona Fall League. Maybe it's an Arizona-Florida Fall League. I've, we've even heard at one point talk that maybe that starts in, in late August. Um, I, the biggest hurdle I see with that is, is if you, you know, the, again, Arizona and Florida are no longer, oh, these are places where it's going really good with coronavirus. These are places that are having really being hit. But on top of that, the PBA, you could make an argument that it's going to be hard to play in August because no, you should be sitting those, you know, if you can play games safely in August, then why aren't they playing minor league games? Which the reason that they're not is, is that they're in a pandemic, a national emergency, all of those PBA rules have been suspended. But on top of that, an Arizona Fall League, a Florida Fall League schedule is probably September, October. And we just don't know what the, uh, the health environment is going to be like in September and October. That said, everyone acknowledges they've got to figure out a way. They want to figure out a way to have players play games. No one wants the majority of minor league players to come into 2021 having had a year off. Yeah, you mentioned the Arizona and Florida Fall Leagues, and I'm glad you brought that up. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, the Florida positivity rate is 14.4%. It was 2.3% a month ago since the states reopened. That has skyrocketed. Arizona is even worse. The positivity rate in Arizona, according to Johns Hopkins, the most recent data is 23%, which is obviously an astonishingly high rate that's extraordinarily concerning. 
again, it's June 25th. A lot can change in one month, two months, three months. But the trend line right now is not moving favorably toward, all right, we're going to bring in prospects from 30 teams, especially the proposal of, well, let's see if each team can have its own quote unquote Arizona Fall League team. That's hundreds of players. That's very, very different. And, and also, which I'll, I just want to make clear, the other thing that could be a, uh, uh, a problem with this is for some teams is, and those are that that's also pay for those players. I know that we're talking about the 400, but you know, but Arizona fall league does pay the players and there may be teams who look in and say, that's an expense. They're trying to cut all expenses. That's an expense. They don't want to have. There's a lot of things here that are still to be worked out. JJ, one final thing, looking ahead to 2021, You mentioned how everything that has happened here for the minor leagues is going to affect them in 2021. There was already proposals to reorganize the minor leagues. You have a story today detailing updates uh, on that proposal. And you referenced the 2021 collective bargaining agreement negotiations. A lot can happen in 18 months. A lot can happen in one month or two months. But 18 months is a long time. That's when this collective bargaining agreement expires. Everything that took place do you think that the negotiations here between the union and the league to get to where we did, did that worsen the outlook in your eyes? Is the outlook the same in your eyes for those 2021 negotiations? How did it affect them, if at all? I'm going to say same. That's one thing that I do think is often kind of um, easily overblown in these things. Oh, we, you know, we lost the good feelings that could have carried over. No, these are, these are, are very tough on both sides, very tough negotiators. Get you, this is not something that's like, okay, you got us this time. We'll get you next time. You know, you got to give us this stuff. That's not how these things work. The 2021 CBA, I've been talking to people about this for years now, and there's a lot of very difficult aspects of that, discussions of that that are going to have to be done because at the end of the day, to sum up the core issue, there are many core issues in the 2021 CBA, but one, I would say probably the most important core issue. Players are either going to or have to accept the days of the 32-year-old getting a big free agent deal whose name is not Mike Trout are over. That, that is something where teams, there are no... There are no owners out there now who are like, okay, you may be telling me that this is a bad idea, but you know what? I want to win a World Series, so we're opening up the checkbook. Here's $200 million in contracts this year. Let's see what, what happens. That doesn't happen anymore. And that was kind of vital to getting players paid because in the past, you know, we had the steroid era where players were still very productive in their free agent years. We're past that. And we are now in the era of rational under-exuberance when it comes to, you know, to MLB teams where they are maniacal about squeezing out every dollar of efficiency that they can. Well, if that's the case, we're going to have to figure out a way that that money's not coming back. So how do you shift that money to paying players during their productive years? That's a giant question because if, that goes back to the core issue that MLB owners have that they have never resolved, which is if I'm a Tampa Bay Rays, if I'm a Cleveland Indians, if I'm an Oakland A's, if I'm, I can keep going down the list. If you shift a system to where 
24, 25, 26-year-olds get paid what they rightfully are earning with their production on the field, if it's not a system where you produce a massive amount of your value before you get to actually get really well paid, if you shift that, those teams do look at that and say, with the current economic structure, we're going to have way less chance to win because everyone talks about a salary cap. Well, if we just had a salary cap and a salary floor, MLB would solve, you know, problems would be solved. Okay, Kyle, I'll throw it to you. If you had a salary cap, which by the way, we have the, we effectively with the luxury tax have a de facto one now, but if you had a salary cap in baseball right now, what would you say would 200 million, 225 million, 290 million? What would that number probably be right now? Well, given the current economic circumstances. Uh, okay, sorry, take the coronavirus yeah, out of no, it. I mean, take, if we were talking about this in 2018, what would that number be? Around what the luxury tax threshold is, which I believe is about $208 million, okay. if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, and again, maybe it's, maybe it's I, let's call it 200. Let's just say 200. If it's $200 million, if we talk about salary cap in the NBA, we talk about salary cap in the NFL, they, every, most every team hits that salary cap. If we had a $200 million salary cap in Major League Baseball without extensively increasing revenue sharing, because baseball, unlike those sports, is a local, local revenue still way more important in baseball than it is in the NBA, than it is in the NFL. A whole lot of teams are never coming close. Yes, you will absolutely lower the salary of the Dodgers. You will lower the salaries that the Yankees pay and the Red Sox pay in their freer spending years. But the Oakland A's, they're not coming, they're not breathing within 75 to 80 million of that number. The Tampa Bay Rays aren't coming within 90 million of that number. The Cleveland Indians, at the height of their peak of there were a World Series team coming back, they're not brushing north of 150, basically. 160, maybe. So the point being, if you look at it overall, you have these core issues like, okay, so MLB owners could say we're going to increase revenue sharing that evens the field. And then you could basically say that the Rays and the A's and the Indians and all are going to spend more money on major league salaries. I don't think that's going to happen. That's, a, that's always been viewed as kind of an internal owner's thing that's very difficult to crack. The Yankees and Dodgers and all don't want to share more of their revenue. If you don't do that, the problem with we're going to figure out a way to pay MLB players when they earn their money. Like when Mike Trout is one of the best players in baseball and he's still in the part of his career service time-wise that he is earning slightly above major league minimum. If you shift that, those teams say, well, then how do we win? And I'm not saying it's right. Sorry, I almost knocked my mic over. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I am saying I don't have an answer for that. I don't know if you do maybe, but that's to me where there are these core issues that are going to be very difficult to solve for the 2021 CBA. As you said, to circle back, those negotiations were going to be difficult regardless of anything else that happened this year. I wrote articles about this, the free agent freeze two years ago, speaking with a lot of agents who are very unhappy. A lot of players have been more vocal about how they're not happy with things under the current system. We've seen owner revenues go up 15% while player salaries have gone up 1%. 
the last four seasons since the 2016 CBA was put into place. There's a lot of things here that were going to be difficult to try and overcome. For me, what this most recent round of negotiations over these last few weeks has kind of revealed is just how expansive the fishers are in the relationship between the owners and players. And I think we knew that in the abstract, right? No one was going into this thinking, oh yeah, these guys are on great terms. There's a ton of trust. They'll figure this out. No one had any illusion that, illusions that that was the relationship between MLB and the players union. I think that, again, just how the slightest hint of a misinterpretation of a word over a meeting between Tony Clark and Rob Manfred turned into this, you know, oh, we're getting close to public sniping within 48 hours again. That to me was pretty revealing, just how delicate and how fragile any agreement they kind of come to is and how even, you know, something being reported differently or one person interpreting a word differently seems enough to scuttle everything. I, I think seeing just how fragile it is and how entrenched both sides are again knowing it in the abstract and seeing it play out are two very very different things so i think for me it just kind of got more real that yeah the gap in trust the gap in understanding the gap in the i don't want to say willingness to work together cohesively but it seems like one side's trying to bludgeon the other into working together with it cohesively rather than trying to meet it in the middle that just all came to the forefront for me during these negotiations, which does not bode well for 2021. But again, a lot, 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 oh. lot, lot can change in 18 months. I will also say, I just think like I follow, I follow the NFL and I followed NFL labor negotiations probably closer than any other sport besides MLB. I follow MLB the most. NFL has had one of the chummiest relationships between the Players Association ever since basically the 87 strike replacement players and not long after that. Essentially, the NFL, uh, it, they proved that they would win any labor, massive labor negotiations. So since then, it's been much more working together. That there doesn't always... out in 2011. I mean, there hasn't right, been but, complete labor but, peace. But, but in that, like what usually that means is one side is massively winning over the other. I, the, the, my favorite NFL one of all time is they have a salary cap. They had a year because to make a poison pill for the negotiations, they said, if we don't have a deal by this point, this year will be an uncapped year. Yep. Uncapped. You can spend whatever you want. So crazy enough, a couple of teams spent over the non-existent salary cap that year. And they were punished for it, I remember. And they that. were punished for it. The Cowboys, I remember. <laughs> the Cowboys were punished for it. In, and the Players Association the NFL is like, yeah, we agree with that. It's like, wait, the whole point was you didn't have a, you know, that, I, again, the, the reality of it is, is on all these things, like I know that, I know that fans hate it on the play, how the players and owners go at each other. There are reasons for bad blood here. We've had multiple collusion cases that were found where it's like, no, no, no. They absolutely circumvented the rules that they had in the collective bargaining agreement. That's a long ways ago. It is. There's been a lot of working together more better since then. But I, I, unfortunately, I, again, I'm a little bit of a robot when it comes to these things. And I know that makes me not always the best at, at understanding fan anger on these things. I expect these to be bloody. I expect them to be ugly. I just hope when it's the bloodiness and the ugliness and the dust all clears, 
They, but both sides understand that it is better for both sides, as bloody as it may get, as ugly as it may get to get to that point, it is absolutely better for revenue for both sides to get through this without a lockout, without a strike, without a labor interruption. And, it, you know, that for the long-term good of not just the game, but the good of the owners and the good of the players, that part is true. I, I do say, though, fans, expect it to – even if, you're, if you absolutely – that's the key thing for you, expect it to be ugly to get there. And we saw that this year with the, uh, with the negotiation for the 2020 season. As we addressed in the introduction, business negotiations are often bloody and ugly. It just doesn't play out in the public eye like Major League Baseball does. Through everything, though, we do have a 2020 season. I'm stoked about it. You're stoked about it. I think anyone who has any involvement in baseball, again, whether it's professionally, personally, any avenue, you're glad to have baseball back. We look forward to this 2020 season that will be unlike any other. There's going to be a lot of interesting things that happen on the field. Obviously, we hope that everything health-wise goes okay. We obviously don't want anyone suffering any type of, of long-term damage to the health of themselves, their loved ones. And as, as long as things stay good on that front, I think we're all going to be thrilled to have a 60-game season and postseason. And then in turn, a, a full 2021 season, hopefully, if uh, the country's in a place to do so. Again, that's going to be outside of baseball's control, but we certainly hope that will be the case for reasons beyond baseball. JJ, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a lot of fun. And I'm glad to actually be talking about baseball and baseball strategy again. It's nice. That is very nice. <laughs> I have missed it. Well, everyone, thanks again for tuning in to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and check out all the latest on BaseballAmerica.com. We have a ton of post-draft stuff, stuff about the minor leagues, and Ben Badler's international signing previews, and everything happening with Major League Baseball and the upcoming season. Now is a great time to subscribe as well. We're still putting out the print product every month and got another great issue on the way. This month's international issue should be on newsstand soon, so I'll go ahead and check it out. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe out there. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.